Peace be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me begin with a a word about this day, quiet day. The boundaries of this time and space are ours. We're invited to spend a significant part of today in quiet and contemplation away from the studies that are always there, the never-ending imperatives to do. We're encouraged to make it time free from electronic devices. I don't know if that's the devices and desires that were talked about in the prayers, but... (laughs) The hope is that in silence, God's presence, which is always there, may be felt. That God's voice may be heard. Some of you are wearing your cassocks to remind yourselves and each other that today is different. Silence is a rare gift. If you think about it, too often we use noise in our culture to get attention, to entertain, to distract. Sometimes it's the quiet one, though, with a gentle gesture that's the most powerful, the most gifting. In general, I just don't like loud noises. And I'm particularly bothered, some of you all know this, when people shout, the Lord be with you, to quiet a room. I kind of feel like it's an ecclesiastical bait and switch. (laughs) Something odd about shouting to quiet. And some of you noticed that I picked up a practice a while back that seems to be almost holy, to gently put the finger to your lips and make the sound that we all know, shh. If you do that, even in a large room, it's almost magical how silence has its way, a movement of quiet and calm through people and space. It's like like dropping that pebble in the water. The ripples go out and out and out. Silence. And so now, and I do really mean it, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. O God, who comes to us in the form of apparent weakness to overrule the delusions of adequacy in which we have bound ourselves, and who in his bondage confronts us with the source of real freedom. Help us to live stories about what it means to accept weakness in order to be strong. We ask this through him who is the final word and who gives us confidence to live things that cannot be proved 
and to celebrate mysteries unable to be explained, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The prayer that I just offered suggests that we we recognize that in the economy of God, strength is found in weakness. For those of us who have taken or are taking or teaching systematic theology, those of us who, who cyclically walk the stations of the cross, who are, who are fed at the table of Jesus, this, this doesn't seem particularly remarkable. We preach this. We know it, we think. After all, we're those who have taken up our cross. We're in seminary. But is it true? Do we really believe in the power of weakness? We serve or study at an educational institution where our work is evaluated, literally graded on a scale, and we serve a church which bluntly has little tolerance for failure and can even be cruel when mistakes are made. Many of you have been before commissions on ministry and and bishops where you want to do what? Put your best foot forward. Make a good impression. Succeed in the process. Faculty are not immune from these realities. Getting tenure, publishing, tenure review, acclaim of peers. And dear ones, if you think you're going to escape it in parish ministry, let me disabuse you now. There's this weird thing, and I see it most clearly when you go to this, this thing called clergy conference, where, where clergy sort of talk about their budget and their ASA, and for the uninitiated, that's average Sunday attendance, and, and talking about being this lofty thing, cardinal rector. And if you really want to step through the looking glass, we could take a moment and have a digression about Episcopal searches and elections. What we say is, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. But do we really mean it? And I'm going to be confessional here and tell you the truth. I struggle with this tension. Let me say more on the chance that my ponderings might mirror something of your own spiritual struggles. I was born into a family that did not accept weakness. Weakness was punished. It was made very clear to us that we had a responsibility to be successful. We were reminded that we carried the family name. Like so many families, despite our best efforts, occasionally imperfection would leak out. And finally, in my 12th year, the dam broke. My brother's multiple addictions and my father's infidelity ripped aside the Warden June Cleaver facade of our family. 
And for those of you who do not know that illusion, you will have to check 1960s television. <laughs> My approach was to put the success drive on steroids. I found the perfect laboratory, actually. It was a small boarding school in rural Tennessee. I, I really went there as escape, and escape I did. But I couldn't unshackle myself from family expectations and mythology. Do well in school. Be well-rounded. Be strong. Be in control. Make your parents proud. And after four years there and four years in college and marriage, I then came to this place, this holy hill. I arrived as a frightened, yet strangely overconfident, at least externally, 23-year-old. Again, be strong, be in control, and don't show weakness. And I was so, so successful at doing that from August when I arrived till June and into my second week of CPE. After a challenging day, my wife and I were, were watching television, relaxing, when during a commercial break, a, a news bulletin reported a breaking story of a plane with an onboard fire making an emergency landing in Cincinnati. The flight was en route from Dallas to Toronto, which was my father's regular route home on some of his business trips. At night, I lost my father just as we were beginning to repair our tattered relationship. One of the graces, I didn't realize it at the time, of that first year at VTS was that Frederick Beekner came to campus in the fall to deliver the Zabriskie Lectures. Some time later, when I purchased the book, The Sacred Journey, I realized that his lectures were essentially uh, giving us the manuscript for that memoir. And in it, he tells the story of his own father's suicide when he was seven years old. Those lectures were just sort of tucked away. His words were there. And when I left VTS in the days following my father's death, for what turned out to be six years. I didn't know as I departed how Beekner's words would slowly have their way with me. I subsequently did purchase The Sacred Journey and read it again and again. Here's just a snippet. He writes, God speaks to us through our lives, we often say, sometimes speaks, something rather, speaks anyway. Something spells out some sort of godly or God-forsaken meaning 
to us through the alphabet of our years. But it often takes many years and further spellings out before we start to glimpse or think we do a little of what meaning is. Even then we glimpse it only dimly like the first trace of dawn on the rim of night. And even then it's me- it is a meaning that we cannot fix and be sure of once and for all because it's always incarnational meaning. So when I returned to this place, I was with the gift of Beekner beginning to guardedly open up and acknowledge some small measure that perfection was certainly unobtainable and that I could show something of my own wounds and brokenness. His words were were starting to ring true. I, I knew something about powerlessness despair, and weaknesses. The glimpses of meaning were elusive, just out there a little bit further. I kind of thought of the the, the blind man in in Mark's gospel after Jesus' initial healing. I see people as trees. It's there, but not quite. I had this sort of novice notion of what it meant to be a wounded healer, but the pieces of the puzzle just weren't quite there, still scattered about. I went and got ordained, started serving my first parish, and one day something happened. As a a newly minted priest, part of my responsibilities were to be a a chaplain in a psychiatric hospital in suburban Boston, McLean Hospital. Now, if you've ever seen the, the movie or read the book Girl Interrupted, it's based on a patient's true story there. And each Sunday, as a a part of my duties, I would do the Protestant service at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I came to know Mark, a schizophrenic who had been in and out of the hospital for several years, and he was sort of my regular acolyte, would set up before the service and help me take it back down, move the candlesticks away and such afterwards. And one December day, I came, and, and Mark was strangely out of sorts. And after the service, rather than doing the, the regular ablutions, he just walked out. And I could see through the open door. He left the door wide open in December in Boston and went and sat on an icy bench out front. And so I cleaned up and did the only thing I could figure to do, just went and sat beside him in silence. Silence works. After quite a while, Mark began to talk. He told me about how he lost his sister on Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, five years before. Mark was wounded in so many ways. He talked, and I listened. Mark didn't know about my father in Air Canada 797. He just told me his story. And finally, when silence returned, 
I knew it was my turn. And I shared in that space my story. The tears flowed abundantly. We shared wounds as equals, as brothers who loved each other. We were community. Whenever two or three are gathered together. And what I need to underscore here is how different we were. I had worldly power. I literally had the keys to the units. He had none. And in that moment, we'd settled in with each other. Absent, what I truly suspect was the work of God's healing hand, Mark and I never would have shared that cold stone bench and the deepest of conversations. And I will never forget his words. He said, I guess it's time we forgive. I guess it's time we forgive. And I knew how far I still had to go. The role of minister and the person served was blurred completely at that moment. Acolyte, I'll say, the one who bears light. Imagine my surprise when Christ came to me in the guise of a schizophrenic patient, a fellow suffering of my pain. Mark was my healing bomb that day in ways that he will never, ever know. And I pray that in some measure I was there for him. What I deeply, deeply know is that we were a manifestation of the kind of community that we all strive to belong to. We were that day church. Rowan Williams once said, we're caught by baptism and solidarities not of our own choosing. Again, Mark and I would not have found each other without the conspiring work of the Holy Spirit. What was true on that bench in December is true in the pews of this chapel. We are all caught in solidarities not of our own choosing. Our baptism, our call, brings us together. Words of Desmond Tutu ring true. Jesus was quite serious when he said that God was our Father and we belong to one family. And because in this family all, not some, Think about our baptismal covenant, respecting the dignity of every human being. Some, not some, but all, all are insiders. 
and because of the time he wrote Bush and Bin Laden, all belong, gay, lesbian, so-called straight, all belong, all are precious. I think today we might edit that and, and add something about the alt-right protester and the young African-American man, something about the Tea Party person holding his banner and the DACA family. We could, could list a few more. But Isaiah says it so well. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf, and the lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. This. This is the dream of God proclaimed by Isaiah. And it seemed to have haunted that 19th century Quaker painter, Edward Hicks, whose, whose work is projected on the wall, and a print of which hangs in my office. Today I've moved that print to the octagonal room for your reflection later today, or really throughout the day. The peaceable kingdom. It's about solidarities not of our own choosing. It is about Mark and me on a day a quarter of a century ago that is with me today just as powerfully as then. It is about you and me in this place. It is about our encounters in the world out there with those who are strangers, even with those who might threaten us. The peaceable kingdom. It calls us to a deeper and higher citizenship. I would invite you today to wonder about the story of your life through the alphabet of your years. Each of you is a child of God who's living in a broken world with your own scar tissue, your own tragedies and sorrows, your own ways that you have carried crosses. We're being brought together in this time and in this place to be Christ's community. We do not choose each other any more than the kid chose to be with the wolf. But we're invited to be this counterculture community, not defined by power or strength, but by self-giving love. What will happen when you cease hiding your weaknesses or your hurts? Who will we meet and how will we be changed? In these hours of contemplation that follow, perhaps you will imagine who you are in Edward Hicks' painting. Or perhaps you'll mentally paint your own picture. Who is in your painting? What power 
have you had to lay aside? What risk must you take to lie down with one who seemingly has power over you? How will you be vulnerable? What will it cost? And what will we become?